Welcome to the Pemberley Podcast, where we discuss Jane Austen and historical romance adaptations. I'm Jillian. I'm Yolanda. Let's dive in with a quote from Pride and Prejudice. There is a stubbornness about me that can never bear to be frightened at the will of others. My courage always rises at every attempt to intimidate me. Very on theme for the women of this episode. This week, we're discussing Queen Charlotte, episode 5. We'll talk about Lady Danbury's new freedom, but is her title at risk? The present-day ladies' woes and talk of gardens in bloom, along with Queen Charlotte's attempt to flee. We'll also give some history behind widows in Regency times and royal portraits. Previously, we got King George's perspective on dealing with his mental struggles and insights into why he was keeping himself away from Charlotte. Though he felt he was getting better, now that Charlotte knows the truth, he's worried about losing himself again and gives himself over to Dr. Munro's insane torture methods. We're picking up with Lady Danbury, who's buried her late husband and is now ready to move on, but... What is moving on for someone whose whole life has been about this one man? We'll start with her. We've made a lot of comments about how Lady Danbury is so nice to her husband. Yes. Really just kind of lets him say and do whatever he wants, made sure he was invited to all these fancy events. She comforts him. She's like there for him. She's like a real rock for him. She is. And now we're really about to learn more about why she is the way that she is, and why she's such a different person in the modern Bridgerton verse. Definitely. We pick up on Lady Danbury, who is really trying to figure out, like, what is unlearning everything she's been taught and being raised and trained to be Lord Danbury's wife? We learn that she was promised to him at just three years old, which is insane. And she only read the books he liked. He She only drank the wine he liked which she didn't even like. And so now she's free. But how can you be free if you've never known freedom? And I think the line that Lady Danbury says here is like, peak Shonda rhymes writing. It's so good. I am brand new. and I do not even know how to breathe air. He does not exhale. That just so perfectly captures like what she's feeling and and what this is like for her. It also demonstrates what a patriarchy we're living in. Like we, we know it, but I think there's these moments where because most of the main characters are women, I mean, it's Queen Charlotte, Lady Danbury, Violet Bridgerton, we're following them in there. We spend a lot of time with the Dowager Princess Augusta as well. This is the biggest reminder that like, the men are the ones who have been making these rules for everybody. These women are just trying to follow them or not. (laughs) Or not. Yeah, I think in their finding their own power ways, they're trying to figure out like, what are the ways the rules can stretch or be changed? and Maybe not changed, but the way that they can live within those rules. And one of those big things is coming up about her title, because now Lord Danbury is the first of all the people of part of this great experiment to pass away. What does that mean? She gets a visit from the Smythe Smiths and the Duke of Hastings, familiar name to us. The uh, the elder Duke of Hastings. Yes, yes, yes. So they visit with a very important question of wondering what's going to happen. You have a kid, you have a son. Is Lord Danbury's title going to him? Is your son now Lord Danbury? Which is insane also, because that would make him Lord of the house. He would have a position over his own mother. Yeah, so what we're seeing here is something called the primogeniture system, which what's basically in place at this time, which is that the eldest boy is the one who inherits pretty much everything. Hmm. We saw 
kind of a snapshot of what this looks like in the second season of Bridgerton, where we get a flashback to Anthony Bridgerton, uh, who at a very young age, not not as young as her four-year-old son, yes. but <laughs> like 19 years old, becomes the head of the household. His mother has not yet given birth to the last Bridgerton child. She is having a very complex birth. And the doctor turns and asks him who lives or dies, mom or baby. We don't know the parameters of the great experiment if they're going to be following the same rules as this system, which is also very patriarchal, by the way. Yes, very much so. (laughs) She has become the unofficial official ambassador for all of them. And she talks to the queen and they're like, you know her, you can ask her. But it's not like she's friends with the queen. So it's not like an easy question to ask her like, hey, what about my title? What's going on? Because even she doesn't know if she's still a lady. So she does reach out to a solicitor who really ends up being no help at all. But in all fairness, there's no precedent for this. And also on top of that fact, turns out that Lord Danbury had been spending his entire wealth in trying to keep or maintain like this lavish lifestyle for Lady Danbury. So she's broke. So not only is she potentially without title, without estate, without money, it's like she's would be penniless and what well what would she do? Probably the most terrifying aspect of being in this situation is knowing there are people in power above you who have the ability to give or take. Yeah. And if you ask, they're going to give an answer. And there's a really good chance that answer is not going to go your way. And you're going to be destitute with your four kids. It's very scary. So she does go to see the Dowager Princess, which there's almost like a trap there. A little bit of like, what is the Dowager Princess going to call her little son, Dominic? And she was on the brink of saying, Lord... And the people behind her are like, you don't know what that means. If you say, if you call him a lord, you can't take that back. Which like, she kind of half said it. I don't know. Could she take it back? I really admire Lady Danbury for trying to, she's going for the presumptive close. She doesn't want to ask because if she asks, it could be a no. So she's like, maybe if I just kind of say it's like that, she'll agree. And then that'll just kind of like backdoor solve everything. Yeah. But it's, uh, of course, a little more complicated than that. But she puts a lot of pressure on her sweet, adorable little boy. The most adorable. The most adorable in his little suit and his little vest. And she's just kind of like, act like a lord. And he's like, can we go back to nanny, please? I miss nanny. And it's sad because she, all her answer is like, listen, kid, I didn't know my parents either. You don't know me. But I'm still your mother and you're going to do as as you're told. And I don't know, this poor kid is just going along with it. He's doing the best he can. And he's very proper and sweet when he meets the Dowager Princess. So he was clearly raised to be a a well-taught young boy. He's a sweet little lord. A sweet little (laughs) lord, yes. (laughs) While Lady Danbury's also fighting for, you know, her financial and her social freedom as a lady. She's also fighting for her romantic freedom as well. I mean, it was really sad to watch her conversations with Queen Charlotte, where this girl, this teenage girl, had no idea what was expected of her on her wedding night. She doesn't really, like, know anything. And Lady Danbury's like, yeah, this sucks. Husbands suck. It's a chore. It is what it has to be. And now that she doesn't have the constraints of this marriage, she's wondering what love could look like when she doesn't need to be tethered to somebody. Mm -hmm. She kind of sets her sights on Violet Bridgerton's father, Lord Ledger. 
She goes on a walk and sits at what she thinks is her cottage. Turns out it's his cottage, but he's not mad at her for trespassing. In fact, they enjoy each other's company and have a nice conversation for a bit. They almost kiss, but at the last minute, Lord Ledger is like guiltily excuses himself. You know, he's got a wife and who knows how many kids. It's very obvious that he doesn't have a loving relationship with his wife. I think it's not unrelated to what Lady Danbury experienced with her husband. I guess the difference, though, being that he does have a good relationship with Violet. Like, there's clearly, like, a loving father-daughter relationship there. He calls her brains. It's, like, a very cute nickname for her. She's very involved in, like, what her dad does, and she, like, wants to spend time with him. She sees him making one of his famous paper hats. So she's like, who's who's that hat for, Dad? Who, Who are you making it for? She was even like... That's too big for my head, assuming it's for her. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, this is for a friend. This is a friend's hat. So she helps him decorate it, which is an important detail to remember yes. for a later time. <laughs> Lady Danbury is embarking on romance. Yeah. Lord Ledger goes to her estate and they're alone. He goes in and they have passionate sex so now we are seeing lady danbury clearly moving on and now as the metaphor that current lady danbury uses her garden has been planted so she is now experiencing something new and to me it's like i don't know i like seeing her happy and i like seeing that she's moving on but this is so risky not just because of the scandal that yes she is sleeping with a married man she was a widow but also her title is not guaranteed still like this could greatly impact her future so it's i don't know it's a risky move on her part but she's she's going all in shonda loves a risky romance yes. that's the whole premise of scandal <laughs> yes. the whole premise of that's it that's very true <laughs> That's very true. Lord Ledger is not quite president of the United States level important. It's definitely a a situation where if this is found out, I think it's going to be a lot worse for her than it is for him. Well, it's interesting because the Bridgertons clearly live where the Ledgers live now. So I'm wondering if like all of the Bridgerton money is actually like Ledger money. Ooh. Is like that where the wealth all came in. Well, all the more reason for Lady Danbury to feel like she'll be ostracized when all right. of this comes crap. I mean, we we haven't like officially met a Bridgerton in this timeline yet. We've only met we only know Violet Ledger. Yes. And she's she's quite a bit younger than yeah. the Queen. I mean, I would say Violet is like maybe thirteen. And Lady Danbury, I mean, I get the impression she's probably at least in her like mid to late twenties. I think so. She's like mature for this time. I mean she's long enough to have four kids, but she's gone so long without knowing what love is. And so I yeah, it's risky. So let's go into a history fact on widows and widowers in Regency times. And this is taken from a blog post from historical romance author Vanessa Riley. In Regency times for widows, you would go into a mourning period when you lost a loved one, which varied in duration depending on the relationship. In Lady Danbury's case, losing a husband would be a mourning period of one year. Your clothes indicated what stage of mourning you were in, so at the start of full mourning, women wore much like what we see Lady Danbury wear. You're in full black dress, you have black gloves, a black shawl, maybe a black cap or a veil. So during full mourning, you're expected to abstain from social activities, though you could receive calls. You would not go out and participate in anything in society. But your friends could come and comfort you. Yes. 
If they wanted to visit, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they'd want to visit. Yeah. Well, you, you're expected to set yourself apart from society. It, it, I guess it's a true test of friendship to see who still wants to interact with you when you are set apart. Oh, that's a good point. Halfway through the morning period, you begin to wear more somber colors so you can expand your color wardrobe to violet, brown, gray, and lavender. And slowly but surely, you could start to participate in social activities again. Women were socially forbidden from marrying within a year of their husband's death in case she was with child, so there's no mix-up on who's the father. That's so interesting. Yes. Who would, how would they know? Now for widowers, yes, they also wore all black, but black was part of their daily wardrobe anyways, so really it was just like you would swap out your ivory cravat for a black one. So for men, it just wasn't as noticeable of a change. And their seclusion, unlike women, only lasted for a few weeks because of their work responsibilities. And they were socially permitted to remarry right away, especially if they had young children. So they were not expected to, like, be a single dad for a while or, like, figure it out. They could just remarry and have their new wife be the woman of the house and take care of all their kids. I'm rolling my eyes right now at this (laughs) because... That's not fair. It's not. We wanted to take a quick break to shout out a brand and their products that we really enjoy and think you will too. Well Read Company makes products perfect for all book lovers. Their selection of bookworm gifts and literary accessories will have people complimenting you every time you wear it. They have handbags that look like books, including titles like Emma, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and other literary classics. You can get 10% off your purchase by using our exclusive code with no spaces, the Pemberley Podcast. They ship worldwide, including USA, Canada, and Europe. Visit their website at wellreadcompany.com to browse their products and follow them across social media at wellreadco. Now back to the show. Let's go on to present day woes of our leading ladies. Really, it's I'm calling this the lonely ladies because it's kind of starts with each of them having a moment of like realizing they're alone in their bed and it's at night. And I'm sure they've had many of these nights where they're like, this is it. This is my life. And we're just having to move on. So the queen is really still trying to get her kids married and produce an heir. This time, though, she has brought two princesses there and her son's And she's like, congrats, you're getting married next week. Those are your betrothed. And she, they tried to like bring in the prince regent to like overrule it. But he quickly gives in to his mom and is like, yeah, they can get married. They are getting married. And it is at their wedding day where they're, one of the sons is like actually a little bit scared. He's like, but what if I don't love her? We see Queen Charlotte having a moment of motherly advice, a moment of softness with her son. And she tells him that love is determination. That's very much been present throughout her own marriage of battles and through the struggles and through the secrets and through hiding things. She has really just been determined throughout her whole marriage of fighting for George. I do love her sort of springing wives on her sons in the same way that her husband's own mother sprung her on him. Yeah, exactly. It's, It's very reminiscent of that. And I also love that line about love is determination because... I think her kids could stand a little determination. I mean, they've produced so many illegitimate heirs because they have been frolicking and they've been falling in love and they've been having a good time and they've never been forced to make a decision. And Mm -hmm. they're in the middle of a real crisis right now. And Charlotte's life 
from the moment she was married, we can see that there were a lot of moments where she probably wanted to go back over the garden wall and chose not to. They're not saying this, obviously, because they don't really know their mother that well, but it's a great line. It's a great moment. So the next thing we see of our leading ladies is Violet Bridgerton is really just coming in and having a sexual reawakening. They're at a gallery and there's a lot of beautiful portraits of people who aren't clothed. And she's like having a moment in this gallery. She is in heat. (laughs) (laughs) That was my thought the whole time I was watching her story arc was I was like, oh, Violet Bridgerton is in heat. Yes. Aggressively. Lady Danbury can tell something's wrong with her. <laughs> like, she's like, something's going on. And she says, her garden is in bloom. And she goes on and uses that metaphor. My husband and I had a garden. A luscious garden with many varieties of flowers. And lately, without warning, the garden has begun to bloom. Like, there's men around. There's naked pictures around. <laughs> it's a scene. Yes. It's a scene. I feel like she's just gonna, like, scream out and be like, ah! <laughs> Imagine she'll point at any man and be like, you! Yes. She's having really complicated feelings about her garden being in bloom, though, because even though we've never really seen her marriage with Edmund, really, the only time we've ever met Edmund was when he uh, was stung by that bee and died in front of everyone's eyes, including our own, and forever traumatized. At least me, I'm traumatized. Yeah. But they had a lot of fun together. You know, Her, we were seeing that her father was also a fun guy who made paper hats and loved celebrating birthdays. And I'm sure she brought that energy into the marriage. And they had a family. There was a lot of love there. It sounds like there was a very active sex life, also evidenced by the eight children. Yes. She feels, I think, really guilty having these feelings without him present. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Lady Danbury doesn't know how to breathe the air that Lord Danbury exhales I think Violet doesn't know how to be in love without Edmund. Very true. We don't see the end of like, what's this? what does this mean for Violet? But I'm so curious to see if they're going to pick this up in any way in the main Bridgerton series in season three. So is there going to be like a story arc where we see Violet Bridgerton start to go out with men? Or is she going to be, I don't know, try to like get married again and that sort of thing? I hope it does show up because I don't want it to just get dropped and then we don't see it again until the next limited series. Well, but how poetic would it be to watch her sort of pursue a new relationship when she, I think maybe doesn't expect to have a love as great as she had with Edmund, but to have flashbacks where we see their crazy romantic love story and how they started and and sort of contrast that with how she's changed and how she's trying to fall in love with modern day. Like, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Yeah. In this episode, we see the Dowager Princess tell the royal painter to lighten Charlotte's skin. So let's dive into a bit of the history behind this and talk about the real royal portrait. In 1761, Alan Ramsay was appointed principal painter in ordinary to the king. This was a big deal because he would be responsible for the official royal portraits. It was stated that his own studio was just filled with basically canvases of different portraits of the king and as he was trying to finalize the real portrait. In Queen Charlotte's coronation portrait, you can see actually the exquisite and expensive stomacher we talked about in episode one, and that's worth approximately about $12.8 million in today's money. 
The royal couple enjoyed sitting for Ramsay. George appreciated his knowledge of cultural and political manners, and Ramsay even spoke German, which was a welcome pleasure for Charlotte to speak in her native tongue. Though Ramsay was their painter for a short time due to an arm injury in 1773, his portraits are singled out for portraying Queen Charlotte with distinctly African features. Historian Mario de Valdez y Cocom argues that Charlotte was directly descended from a black branch of the Portuguese royal family, though many of the portraits portray Charlotte as very fair-skinned. This was in fashion and she was likely highly powdered to appear more quote-unquote fashionable. Ramsay's portraits may seem like evidence that Queen Charlotte was biracial it was even considered an act of abolition by Ramsay. As anti-slavery campaigns were growing during her reign, it's speculated the painters were expected to downplay her African features. The queen fulfilled her marriage contract though, which stated she would never get involved in politics. Queen Charlotte's biracial background has never been confirmed nor denied by Buckingham House. In fact, spokesman David Buck told The Globe, this has been rumored for years and years. It is a matter of history. And frankly, we've got far more important things to talk about. That is their stance on <laughs> confirming or denying Queen Charlotte's biracial background. Ramsay's royal portraits continue to be on display in Buckingham Palace. So now let's go into the last event of this episode. The Queen is with child. Charlotte has not been able to see George since he last gave his body back over to Dr. Monroe and she keeps writing letters to him and the letters are just keep piling up, but his doctor says that he's not ready to read anything from Charlotte. That sucks because yeah. in the last episode, we really thought that like love had won. There's kind of this intersection between Monroe saying, you need to be controlled. You need to learn how to be a more average person and not this like king who can have anything he wants. Like that's the thing that's causing your episodes. On the other side of that, Charlotte thinking that, you know, just by creating a happy, healthy family life, that's what's going to cure him of his affliction. And yeah. so there's, there's just everyone kind of thinks that like they know what's best for George. Unfortunately, what's I mean, it's not something we find out. It's just something that happens that he doesn't get better. There's not yeah. like a a change in lifestyle that's going to end things for him. And so everyone's just kind of like tugging at control over George. The Disney fairy tale ending of this would be like, and George reclaims power over his own mind. And like, he goes on to live very many happy years with Queen Charlotte. But it's not something he could ever have control over because it was undiagnosed. They had no idea how to handle it. So... Even though everyone, like you're saying, is pulling at trying to have control of it, no one has control of it. So Charlotte has written a letter to her brother, the Duke, Adolphus. So Adolphus arrives, which I'm sure was like a month-long journey, and he arrives and she's like, great, you're going to take me home. Once he hears that she is pregnant, he's like, to take you home would be an act of treason because you have the next King of England in you. So no not gonna go with your plan. We're gonna stay here. We're gonna figure it out. Because the added layer of this is that beyond just getting married in the betrothal contract, this is also an alliance between the two countries. <laughs> so in exchange for like this agreement, it's like, hey, Mecklenburg Strelitz is gonna be chill with Britain and you're gonna be chill with us. So yeah, that's another layer that Charlotte didn't know about. 
I feel like she just experienced this false high where she got her husband back. He moved in with her. She's very pregnant at this point. And he's like, oh, did you call me over so that I could be with you when you give birth and meet my nephew? And she's like, no, literally, I don't know my husband. He's a terrible person. I don't know him. You need to take me away from this. And what sucks about these betrothal contracts and the fact that she's carrying the next king of England in her womb is there is no going back. There's no backseas. There's no, what, there's like a, she's going to go back to like frolicking in Germany and eating schnitzel all the time. That's not going to happen. He even says to her, your body is not yours. And that's such a gross, hard thing to hear. And honestly, George is kind of going through it right now, too. I mean, not even in a fake way, like as patriarchal as a lot of things are happening in this episode, he's handing his body over to this doctor because he needs to be the king. Anything that happens to him is the ruin of England. And now because she's pregnant with England's heir, it's the same for her. And she just has to be alone and miserable and quote unquote healthy. And there's nothing her brother can do for her. It's not as easy as she thought it would be. (laughs) Of like, just call your brother and take me home. It's not, it's not that, unfortunately. Queen Charlotte does in fact decide to turn to Lady Danbury, but in a very unique way because she shows up at her house and is already there and is like, I'm moving in. Like, that's, that's my plan. Like, I can't go back home. I'm just going to live here. And Lady Danbury handles this way better than I probably would have. I would have freaked out and been like, Oh, should, should we get like pillows? Should we get like blankets? And like, yeah, let's just set you up in here. No, yeah, we'll just pop some popcorn. Like, it's the sleepover. <laughs> yeah, it's totally chill. Lady Denbury like blocks in the door with a chair and she's like, call the estate, get Brimsley over here, call her brother, that sort of thing. So they quickly come over and there is a nice moment between Charlotte and Agatha. She does mentor her again. Like, it's this interesting dynamic where. Agatha is having to mentor up to the queen who was also still learning to be queen and Lady Danbury is like also learning to be a lady so they're both like works in progress trying to help each other this is really I think where we see like the beginning of not a friendship but just like a really solid understanding between them and something that really grows over the years where they really trust each other what's interesting about this show is definitely the female friendships because class plays such a massive role at least in queen charlotte like i feel like in bridgerton everyone's kind of the same everyone's rich and they're everyone's (laughs) rich everyone's friends and here there is just such a distinct gap between queen charlotte and lady danbury and it's also this weird thing where charlotte's still like a teenager she needs someone to just i mean she needed someone to tell her what sex even was she still needs someone to show her the ropes but also no one can teach you to be queen no one's going to teach you to be queen Agatha, like you said, is still learning how to be a lady in the sense that she also has to validate her entire existence and everything that she has. And she's got to fight for it. It wasn't like it was bestowed on her, but she doesn't know if there's going to be backseas here. So it's a really delicate tightrope where Agatha kind of needs Charlotte as an ally. She doesn't know how to ask for things because Charlotte doesn't know how to wield queenly power. And there's all this like, oh, what's George going to say? Do we even like him? You know? So it's really complicated. And I feel like what's kind of sad between the Queen and Lady Danbury is like, they'll never be like BFFs. I don't know if Charlotte will ever be able to confide in Agatha the way that she would like to. I feel like Agatha could have used this moment, but she definitely read the room correctly and being like, so 
my lady title, my my lord title for my son. Um, what about that? She clearly sees like Queen Charlotte is in distress, so she handles that really like empowers the queen. So then the queen goes off and uses her full queen powers to push past the awful doctor to get to George. This is my favorite scene. Yes. I think probably one of my favorite scenes in the series. She finds him being tortured, pulls him away, and banishes Dr. Monroe from ever being on palace grounds again, and immediately moves the king back to Q. So she is coming in and saving her husband. It's a really dramatic scene, too, because she's basically done sitting around Lady Danbury's house, and she's like, you know, my beef is with the king. Let's go barge in on him again. I've done it before. I'll do it again. So Charlotte is led to the dungeon basement, sees her husband screaming, tied to a chair, and has to scream, untie the king. And it's crazy that it was always that easy, but it was never that easy for George, at least. Yeah. And so she kind of sees what's been going on, and she sees really disgusting extent that he'll go to to try and cure himself. She's not sure where he is in his mental state. So she's like, it's me, it's Venus, like it's Venus. And then she's like, forget Venus, it's Charlotte, it's me, Charlotte, like come back to me, George. So it's like this very powerful moment where she's even like trying to meet him where he's at and like nothing's really getting through. But then she does finally break through to him and he kind of wakes up from like this stance of of being tortured like i think his his mind is truly not his own not just from his own mental struggles but in going through all this torture he's kind of had to surrender his mind over to dr monroe and now trying to take that back over is going to be a journey too and charlotte she's going to try to do that for him and that's i don't think going to have the results that either of them want either so i'm very relieved that we are past the torture session of this whole show, because that was my least favorite. Yes. (laughs) I get it. I hated it. Charlotte and George are, they have come back together again. Yeah. It does seem that when they are together, they are trying to be happy. We'll see how their marriage moves on. So tune in next week as we discuss the finale, Queen Charlotte, episode six. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and support us on Patreon at The Pemberley. And you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com.